Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Peter Kreeft, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been a uh, fan of yours for a long time now. Actually, as I was having my own conversion, I read one of your books, uh, Because God is Real, which was a great book for me at the time, and I, I would recommend it to anybody. And you've written many books over your uh, career. And your other major task is being a professor of philosophy at Boston College and King's College. Is that right? That's right. So I don't know if anybody has asked you this question. They probably have. But let's go all the way back. I like to do this with my guests and start from the beginning. For those who don't know, who is Peter Kreeft? What was your upbringing? How did you get to where you are now? Well, the question, who is Peter Kreeft, uh, cannot be answered by Peter Kreeft because Peter Kreeft is a fictional character invented by an author named God. So you'll have to ask the author why. Uh, how did I get here? Well, my parents conceived me. That's how I got here. Uh, I hear you mean uh, into philosophy. That's correct. All right. Uh, in college, I was an English major, and I kept arguing about everything I read, so I figured that maybe I'd better give philosophy a try. And I had a very good philosophy professor. Usually, our vocations are determined not so much by abstract ideas, but by concrete person. And I said, that's what I want to be. Got into philosophy. Uh, the head and the heart have to cooperate together in order to accomplish anything really significant. So philosophy is what I love and philosophy is what I'm interested in. So head and heart both led me there. So that's my vocation. Philosophy as the love of wisdom rather than just the cultivation of cleverness or the sophistication of scholarship. A lot of people, when they think of philosophy today, they think of it as something that, you know, what the ancient Greeks had or something that's not really relevant today. How does philosophy actually apply to, say, you know, the, the modern person in our daily lives? Well, what the ancient Greeks had was something that's much more relevant to our lives today than what most contemporary philosophers do. What most contemporary philosophers do is simply analyze the meaning of language and evaluate the logical validity of arguments, which is perfectly good, but that's like math. and uh, the sciences are much more interesting than math. Math is just the language of science. For the ancient Greeks, philosophy was the love of wisdom. And wisdom is a much deeper thing than simply correctness or information. Wisdom teaches you how to be human and how to, to live a, a, a human life and a happy life and a good life. Those are the, the existential questions. So-called existentialists are really closer to the great Greek philosophy. Plato and Aristotle than most of the so-called analytic philosophers. They continue that tradition of a search for, for a wisdom that's going to make a difference to your life. One of my favorite philosophers, William James, uh, an American philosopher, very American, very practical, founder of pragmatism, uh, says that uh, uh, if a philosophical question has two possible answers, and if it makes no difference to your life which answer you believe, then for all practical purposes, it's neither true nor false. I think that's a good uh, criterion to sort out questions that demand our time and questions that don't. It's still an honest uh, and honorable thing to do to analyze language and, and logic and uh, do the analysis of, of words and meanings. It's like a parrot on your shoulder saying, Oh, uh, stop speaking with a mouthful of hot mush. What exactly do you mean here? But that's not the deepest meaning of philosophy. The deepest meaning and purpose and essence of philosophy is a search for something that's going to make a difference to your life and character and wisdom. Yeah, I think that's a great definition. And a lot of people today, I kind of think, are falling into this trap of relativism. Could you talk a little bit about why it's so important that we have kind of this understanding of reality uh, and, and what is the best understanding of what reality is and how that leads us away from that idea? This also leads us back to Greek philosophy. 
Socrates is certainly the first great philosopher, the great granddaddy of all philosophers. And most of his dialogue are with the sophists, who were the original relativists. They were both relativists about values. They thought all values were man-made and negotiable. And relativists about truth. They thought truth was simply a matter of subjective opinion. My truth versus your truth. One of the Socratic dialogues is a, uh, an argument against uh, the sophists. The sophists now dominate the establishment. Uh, we need Socrates. Erasmus, the great Renaissance humanist, prayed. Saint uh, Socrates, pray for us. That's a good prayer. Yeah, Socrates, uh, that's actually the, the name of this podcast originates from his great, um, uh, not metaphor, but um, allegory of the cave. The man, man's ascent to a deeper and more true knowledge of, of the r most real thing or, or being. Um, that's the most deservedly famous image in the entire history of philosophy. If you know anything about philosophy, you know about Plato's cave. Uh, an image of not just intellectual enlightenment, but uh, uh, reality, just clever ideas, but the real world. Uh, Socrates and Plato, uh, like Shakespeare, uh, believed that there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our philosophy. That's uh, Hamlet's wife, Saint Horatio, who couldn't believe ghosts until he saw Hamlet's father's ghost and then didn't quite know what to believe in. Uh, most people today believe, I think, that there are fewer things in heaven and earth than in our philosophy. That is, fewer things in objective reality than in our consciousness. Most of our ideas, they think, are uh, fallacies and, and, and follies and superstitions. Uh, I think all the great philosophers think the opposite. They think of themselves as little children in a very large house with a lot of corners and, and things before they don't understand. Uh, that's that's why the three greatest Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all said that philosophy begins in wonder. Wonder is, of course, intellectual curiosity, but it's fueled by something deeper than that. That's that there's there's more out there than I know. I have to come out of my little cave. I have to grow. I have to become bigger and my consciousness. Yeah, I think when we're trying to ascend out of our own caves, trying to 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 get there. We kind of have to focus on what's the most real thing. What do you yeah. think? Uh, what, what would you define as being the most real thing? Well, that, that's a good question, and most people today do not ask that question because the question assumes that there are degrees of reality. That one thing is more real than another. For instance, when you when you go to a party and want to impress people and you try to put on a lot of masks, that's unreal. That's not really you. And when you strip off your masks and when you're utterly honest, and especially if you pray, if you're face to face with God who sees through all masks uh, and you're totally honest, well, that's, that makes you more real. Uh, real means able to stand in the light without disappearing. That's a really good definition. Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially young men, which this podcast is geared towards, really struggle trying to be their most true authentic selves. What do you think we can this is, begin a, sexist, this is a sexist remark, but I think you're, you're, you're right in especially targeting men because women seem to have fewer problems with who am I and what am I going to be and, and what is the meaning of my life than men do. Uh, and that's because every woman can be a mother. Every woman has a womb doesn't have to exert it. That's, that's a, a built-in identity. Uh, we, on the other hand, have to make our identity. Uh, we don't have an inner womb. We have a phallus, which we can use to impregnate women or, or, or impregnate the world with our, our art or our science. But we have to create an identity outside of ourselves, which woman does. Yeah, where do, you, where do you think men can begin even to start creating or looking towards creating their own identity? I don't think that's the question you should start with. I think the question you should start with is what is the truth? What kind of world am I in? And what kind of person am I? And is there a, uh, is there a script to this play or is the whole thing ad-lib? Are there values that are going to define me? 
is there anything that that didn't come from silly minds like my own uh, that can judge me and define me as good or bad, wise or foolish? If so, plan. Yeah, let's let's kind of shift more into a discussion of theology. I think, how do we then know there is a God or that He has this nature that we can look towards? Well, the way most people do that is by personal example. Uh, you can't totally trust yourself all alone at any point in life, certainly not when you're a child. So you're dependent on your parents. And as you grow up, you become more and more independent. But you're still dependent on your teachers, uh, living and dead. Uh, uh, you judge them, of course. You have to pick between them because they contradict each other. But... Uh, uh, you're looking all the time at and hoping to find a, a, a standard for judgment. You're, you're hoping to find the truth, especially the truth about the most important things, which is what is. Um, so how do you know that there's a God? Well, if there's no God of any kind, the question is not, you know, what is the nature of God? Uh, which religion has him right and which denomination has him right. That, those questions come later. But if you're the highest being in the universe, if there is no mind higher than yours, uh, then the quest is hopeless. And the quest is simply for your own thing. Do your own thing, find your own mind, uh, find your own talents, uh, explore them and develop them the best you can in this world. And then when you die, that's it. Uh, so it doesn't really make that big a difference. It's kind of depressing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of depressing, yeah. Life sucks, then you die. <laughs> uh, just gather the most toys before you, you go. Uh, nobody likes that. Even those who believe that uh, don't say, this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is the bad news. So there's in us an innate desire for something more, something outside of play with something that transcends us. Uh, and that's a vague definition of God, but it's, it's a starter. All the religions of the world are based on that human aspiration for something more than you. Even a religion like Buddhism, which is totally agnostic about God, it's not religious at all, it has no God or gods. Nevertheless, there's a, a something or other that's indefinable, some mysterious mystical something, nirvana, which, which is worth aspiring to. And when you get it, uh, makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. How can we start to actually find who that God is, what that God is, and then begin to trust that God with real humility? Look at the claims. Uh, once you realize your need, you notice that there are a lot of products in the market that claim to fulfill your need. So the only open-minded and honest thing to do is give everyone a hearing. And that's gonna take time. There's no instant uh, button to push that uh, gives you the answer. There's no, there's no litmus paper that uh, you can stick in any idea and if it comes up blue, it's true, and if it comes up pink, it's false. So you have to be patient. And if you begin with a certain family background and religious background, start there. Uh, most of us in our society begin with Christianity, so that's the first thing to look at. And what are the claims of Christianity? Well, uh, is the man Jesus Christ who claims to be God and the Son of God coming from heaven is utterly human and utterly divine. What a strange thing, a unique thing. No other religion has that claim. That's what you, you look at first. Uh, don't worry about all the details, uh, they, they come later. But uh, that's either true or false. And if that's true, that's the most startling truth and most important truth that we've ever seen in all of human history. And if it's not true, it's a fake, and it's a myth, and it's a lie, and you have to find something else. Don't ignore it. Face it. Yeah, so let's say somebody is, has kind of explored these ideas of the different gods and what they're saying in that in what their truth is, and they've kind of settled on the Christian ethic, right? Mm -hmm. How then do they approach the understanding of, okay, well, Jesus was a man and also God, but then he also, we also know that there's God in what we call three persons. How do we begin to understand that reality of the, what we call the Trinity? 
Well, you look at its historical origins. Uh, Trinity is the church's hypothesis to explain the data. It's not right like science. Uh, science develops different theories uh, which are verified or falsified uh, by the data. Uh, so you test every hypothesis by the data, right? Um, here is a people, the Jews, who are distinctive, and their God is distinctive. And their God is the only one who's totally moral and totally one and, and has purposes and has uh, interactions with his people and he loves his people. It's a remarkable thing. Look at that. If that's the true God, then go to the next stage. And among these people, a man appears claiming to be the Son of God, equal to his Father. Uh, and he claims to be the Savior from sin. And when he leaves, he says he'll promise to send the Holy Spirit, which is sort of God that haunts you from within. Uh, and the historical record of this is, is in the Bible. So the church that Jesus established says, well, look here, here's the data. One, only one God. And the being that Jesus calls his father, who is the God who reveals himself throughout the Old Testament, that's God. Jesus is also God, and the Holy Spirit is also God, but those are three distinct persons. They each have their own will, and they totally agree with and love and cooperate with each other. So one God in three persons, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, is the only explanation that uh, allows for all the data. So if you accept that data, you accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, and there's something also really interesting in the nature of the Trinity that love has to exist in relation and so yeah. God, if we'd say that God is love, then he also has to exist in this relational aspect. Yeah, of all the Christian ideas, the Trinity is probably the most difficult. Uh, and of all the Christian ideas, the idea that God is love is probably the most attractive. Uh, but they go together. God can't be complete love if he's only one person. The only kind of love one person can have is egotism. Yeah, it would, it would be uh, self-centered, like what we were talking about. If it was just us, it would just be, we're the highest being, and we're doing it for our own purposes. And if God had to love us in order to be altruistic love, then he'd be dependent on preachers. And before any human beings came, God was just an egotist, and he had to create us in order to be uh, an altruist. Yeah. That can't be right. Yeah, let's get into that idea a little bit, because one of the the main understandings of the Christian ethic is that God is love and God loves us in our nature, despite our sin, right? How can we understand that, that, that reality of, even though we're sinful, God still loves us. The easiest way that most cultures have in understanding that reality is to be born into a loving family. Why do your parents love you? Uh, oh, look how cute that baby is. That baby's not cute. Looks like a, uh, a withered tomato. <laughs> uh, oh, you can do anything you want to do. Go try it. No, you can't. You have limitations. Oh, good. You got a B instead of a D. Good for you. Yeah, but you didn't pay an A yet. We tell we tell those things to our students because we love them. Our children. Um, so we learn what love is in the family. The family is the place where you're loved, not for what you perform, the workplace, but just for what you are, no matter what you are. So God loves his severely brain-damaged children, us. He's our father. And what other hope do we have, really? If we had to perform perfectly to be acceptable to God, we'd have no hope. Yeah, and that's a trap that a lot of people seem to fall into. Um, the, uh, the early heresy of Pelagianism, right? That, that we have to earn God's love or earn heaven. I think I'm getting that correct. How do we avoid falling into that kind of, yeah. that, that yeah. pitfall? By the very first thing you asked me about, namely honesty. Uh, look at yourself. Do you deserve heaven? Are you even capable of a face-to-face -face relationship with God right now with no, uh, no filters in between, no mediator? You're like a... a a moth and, and God is like a volcano. You, you wouldn't survive. Yeah, we can't face the the most real thing in our broken 
state. And sometimes it takes people many, many years to come to that realization. They try to find uh, meaning in themselves and what they can accomplish. And eventually you realize that it's not enough. And then you look to other people and to culture and history and society, and they're just fallible like you. And if you look to nature, that's not going to happen. That's less than you. So your only hope is God. But it, the God that's merely an ideal to aspire to is not going to help very much because he doesn't come down to help you. The active God, the God who acts in history, who loves us so much that he sends his son to die for us, uh, that's our only hope, really. And sometimes you don't need, this is very personal, some people do need it, some people don't need it. Sometimes you don't need to try everything else and give up on it before you embrace God. One time you just look at it and say, that's it, here I am. Uh, and sometimes you can't do that, and you have to try everything else. Everybody's got very different paths. It's the same God, but there are many different paths to him. Some of them are much longer and more winding. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. With How do we accept who God is and accept his love, for one, especially if we're... we're we tend to be more broken, right? How do we even accept that somebody can love us unconditionally like that and then accept that with this idea of humility, of trusting him? Sometimes the only way we can do that is if God lets us be broken. Uh, and maybe it's not sometimes, maybe it's all the time. The only, the only completely full and whole human heart is a heart that's been broken by disappointment. <laughs> That's a really interesting idea. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, imagine somebody who has never been broken, never been deeply disappointed. Uh, they get pretty much everything they want. The little bits of suffering and disappointment that they have in their lives, they can cope with quite well. Uh, they've got a good psychologist uh, and good self-esteem, and they're yuppies, and they're fairly rich, and they've got money and sex and power. Uh, it might take them a lifetime to realize that they're, they're moths in the volcano, that they're, that they're fragile. Uh, that, that's the true tragedy. Somebody who is repeatedly broken and frustrated and confused and tragic, not so tragic. They're, they're learning wisdom. They're learning the, the very first lesson of wisdom is honest humility. That's, that's a hard lesson to learn, especially in our society where we're so protected in a bubble. We're, even if we're lower middle class, we're richer than an ancient emperor uh, who, who had refrigerators and computers and cars uh, in ancient society, nobody. So it's, it's much harder for us to find God through that brokenness than it was for the ancients. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to look within and, and see that even if our lives outside are, are pretty good and pretty powerful and pretty successful. Uh, what's inside is just as fragile as our ancestor. We're like, we're like uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man. Now, there's, a, there's a little fragile guy inside this fantastic Superman suit. The Superman suit is our technology. It's conquered the world remarkably by our technology. That's not us. That's just our prosthetic limbs. That's that's to quote the greatest book of the 20th century. That's the ring of power in the Lord of the Rings. That's Sauron's ring, and we are Sauron. We depend on that ring. We have to overcome that addiction. It's not that we have to throw our technology into the crack of doom. It's that we can't become enslaved. We can't become our master. Yeah, that's something that I think I myself struggle with, just, just with the cell phones that we have in our pockets, right? They're, we get so much information all day long and it's hard to put that away and to be silent even. I think that's something that many guys struggle with is silence. Yep, yep. And that's why uh, many people wisely are turning to methods of, uh, of silence and prayer. Some of them are not Christian, some of them are Hindu uh, yoga or, or psychology, but we instinctively recognize that we're going nuts with all the, the overload. Yeah. 
in Ray Bradbury's science fiction classic, Martian Chronicles, there's a little short story about a, a Martian uh, in this world. There are uh, all kinds of, of Martian civilizations. One of them, one of them is an empath. He has such empathy with uh, everybody that comes into his life, he totally identifies with them. And when human beings invade Mars, uh, he becomes empathetic with all the human beings and shares all their sorrows and all their concerns uh, and all their information and everything that's plus and minus. And eventually, after a hundred people inhabit his soul, he explodes. That's the kind of image of uh, what's going on inside many people. I think we identify so much with our overload of, of information and concern and, and data and facts that we don't we don't have the wisdom to withdraw anything. Yeah, I think that's how do we yeah how do we start to hear God even speaking to us then if we don't have this this silence? Well, if you're not an atheist, if you haven't deliberately embraced the philosophy that there couldn't possibly be a God. In other words, if, if you believe that there is possibly, if not actually, a God, then the answer is pray. Even if you have to pray the prayer of the skeptic, God, I don't know if you're there to hear me, but I'm not sure that you're not either. So if, if you are there, please let me know that you're there. And uh, maybe my prayer has to be addressed to him that may concern, but I'm praying. And the one thing that all religions have in common is that need for the humility to look to something greater than yourself. When uh, St. Paul addressed the Greek philosophers in Athens, he uh, noticed that there was a, uh, an altarpiece among all the altars to the different gods that said, to the unknown god. Uh, that was the god that Socrates worshipped. Socrates was the highest agnostic. Uh, and he didn't put them down. He said, this god that you are already worshipping, uh, the Greek verb is in the present perfect tense. Uh, I will now declare to you. So the first thing that you have to do is not figure out who God is. The first thing you have to do is be honest with your own heart. What are you looking for? If the best you can do is an agnostic prayer, well, pray the prayer of the agnostic. Uh, unknown God, uh, God who may or may not be there, I'm not sure. But if you are there, you know that I'm not. So I'm not going to fake it. I'll be honest with you. Uh, please tell me about yourself. Please lead me in, in the right way. If, if you are there, and if you're hearing me, and if you are a God who knows me and loves me and wants to establish a relationship with me, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Lead me somehow. Uh, you're God. I can't control you. You're not my invention. You're not my computer. So I can't push buttons and make you do what I want to do. So I can't tell you how to do this. And I can't tell you when to do this because you're not a, a train. You don't run by a timetable or a lover. Uh, but I'm open. So the ball's in your court. And if you really mean that, and God does exist, he'll do something. It may be subtle. It may take time. It's probably not going to be an instant miracle. But uh, pray that on his prayer. That's, that's the only necessary for its beginning. Yeah, this expectant uh, faith. I think we could we could summarize that. Expect God to 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 work. Suppose suppose you were born and brought up in the Catholic faith. Now you're doubting it. You wonder if it's true or not. So you're you're confused and you're, and you're looking. What do you do about it? All right. Go into some Catholic church uh, sometime when it's when it's empty. Uh, it's safe even in the middle of COVID-19 uh, and nobody's going to look at you funny uh, and just plunk yourself down uh, in front of the altar and say, God, I used to believe that you were really here, that this is really you, God incarnate, body and blood, soul and divinity. I don't know if I believe that anymore, but if, but if you are there, if you are there, here I am and here you are, uh, do something with and if you're not, if that's a myth, uh, then don't let me be attracted to the myth because I want to. I want to know the truth, whatever it is. So that's a specifically Catholic way of doing that prayer of the agnostic. Yeah, and then if 
if we want to know the truth and the truth is we're just in this depressing uh, reality of we're the only ones and we die, <laughs> you know, then, then we'd rather know that than, than yep. not know, you know, yep. believe something that's not true. Unless, unless you're not honest and all you want is comfort and security and pleasure and you want the ideal drug that'll dull the pain and keep your brain functioning in a minimal way. Well, Oh, there's uh, marijuana, there's harder stuff, uh, and there's uh, technology, which can be drug. You can disappear into your cell phone. That brings up the question I had about how do we be our most authentic selves in the world today? There's no answer to that question because how is a question about method and technology. Uh, and a method is always a way of making something easy. For instance, if you want light, you could uh, you could go to a volcano and uh, gather a lot of lava uh, and bring it into the room. That's very dangerous and ineffective. Or you could uh, go out and get some wood and some matches and a light a fire. That's a little less dangerous and a little more. Or you could invent electricity uh, and have light with the press of a button. It's much more and much more safe. Technology does. It makes things efficient. Uh, there is no technology for the spiritual life. There's no way of making it safe. There's no way of making it efficient and under our control. It doesn't work. We need to accept the great adventure. Yes. Life, life is not a, a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery to be lived. Yeah. The, that's a really good um, thing for people who kind of, I think, struggle in this area of trusting God's plan and trusting what's going to happen and knowing that it's for our benefit um, to, to just be in the here and now and, and enjoy the ride, so to speak. Not just enjoy the ride, but you really enjoy the ride. If you believe that the ride is not a meaningless circle that ends at the ground, but a mysterious play written by a mysterious playwright in which you are a character that he dearly loves and there's a remarkable image in a Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge of San Luis Rey almost 100 years ago. A Franciscan priest in Peru is losing his faith because he thinks science can explain everything and because he can't understand why God allows so many horrible evils. And he honestly prays to God and he confesses that he's losing his faith. Uh, and he says, I'm a scientist. I need, I need data. I need at least clues. I'm not asking for certain proof of your existence. very next day after that prayer, uh, he discovers that a uh, tragedy happened. A rope bridge over a gorge uh, parted and five young people plunged to their untimely deaths. And he says to God, this is it. Uh, I, I, I can't believe in you and your world if that's all there is. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to spend a lot of time doing research into these five deaths. If I find no meaning there, I'm, I'm out. But if I do find meaning there, uh, I'm back in with you. But what I'm asking for is clues. I know if you exist, he says, you're weaving a beautiful tapestry and it's a, it's a magnificent uh, masterpiece. That's human life and human history. I'm not God, so I'm on the backside of the tapestry. But even on the backside of the tapestry, you see enough loose threads to guess that there's deep, beautiful meaning on the other side. So give me enough loose threads to believe. I'm not asking to be God and see the, uh, the tapestry of, of human life from your point of view. But uh, I'm looking for loose threads. Well, he spends years interviewing those five families and reading diaries and whatnot. In the end, uh, on the last page, he finally says, okay, glad you hooked me. Enough loose threads. Um, I'm back in. Uh, it's it's got to be all or nothing. And then comes the line that's all As Some say that to the gods, we are like flies spotted by boys idly on a summer's day. Others say that not a hair falls from our head, but the will of the Heavenly Father. It's one or the other. It's a, it's a remarkable book. It should be made into a good movie. Sounds like it could be a, a fantastic screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, that image of the tapestry is, is haunting.
that's got to be how it is. Uh, the most wonderful and difficult verse to believe in the Bible, I think, is Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God. If you're with God uh, in faith, you don't see the tapestry, but you trust that it's perfect. Everything he brings into your life has a reason, and you don't see it because you're not God. Some of the things don't make sense, but he loves you, totally. and if he's powerful enough to do whatever he wills, and he wills your, your good, and he knows exactly what it is, then that logically follows. Yeah, I think that that brings up the real question that a lot of people struggle with when accepting um, faith, that why would a God who claims he's good and is all-powerful allow horrible things to happen, allow us to suffer, allow you know great tragedies and world wars to pers- persist? Uh, I think that that's a big stumbling block for a lot of people, but it kind of is obvious what we're talking about. Well, the obvious answer is he respects our free will. There are great natural tragedies, but if if you took away all human tragedies, if you took away all all Hitlers and little Hitlers, if everybody was the same, uh, we would have almost utopia. We still have volcanoes and, and, and tornadoes, and might even still have cancer, and we'd certainly still die. But but our life would be immensely happier. Blame God. Let's blame ourselves. And the remaining. Physically, that come to us would be well. We'd have a different attitude towards them. We would have the same attitude the saints took. An attitude we have. Well, yeah, that's bad, and I don't understand God why God would let me die at such an early age. But I trust Him. He's got His reasons, and He loves me, and that's why He's doing it. He'd be able to do that. And accepting that brings a lot of peace and freedom. That's kind of the good news of the gospel in a deeper way. And he could force us to do that by, by constant miracles. Uh, he would convert every atheist in the world. If only he, he walked into a scientific laboratory and say, I'm better than Superman, shoot me full of bullets. See, uh, what miracle do you want me to perform? I'll snap my fingers and do it. That would convince everybody. Yeah, that, that's the mystery that God wants us to love. And love, is, love has to be free. Love is a, a choice. Um, yeah, uh, there's one question I want to ask, and then I wanted uh, to ask you a question about your new book. Um, but the first one is then, where does our, our free will come into play then? If God knows everything, like the tapestry idea, if he sees how it's all going to end and he's outside of time and he's looking at it like a line, right? And he sees from beginning to end how everything's going to happen and he knows it, then how, where does our free will actually come into play there? You said if he's outside of time. But the rest of your picture assume that he's in time, like a fortune teller, looking into a crystal ball and predicting the future. If God is in time and predicting the future, we can't really be free. He's the puppet master pushing down dominoes. But if God is outside of time, and if everything is simultaneous, he sees the whole tapestry uh, at once. Us is past and unfree, and what to us is future and free. What to us is present. Is all this at once, that removes the problem. It doesn't totally explain how we can be both free and totally known, but it at least enables that. that uh, uh, God is the eternal contemporary of everything that's happening. If, if you predict that there's going to be a hurricane tomorrow and 100 people will die, and they do die, then you're the kind of fortune teller whose foreknowledge makes future events necessary and not free. But if you're simply watching, if for instance, one of them dies because he wanders too close to the sea and doesn't evacuate, and that's his free choice. Well, if you're watching him making that free choice, you're not forcing him to do it. You're not pulling his strings. So to see God as the uh, pre-existing puppet master or author of a story that he first has in mind and then unrolls like a movie film, but to see God as the living crescent contemporary, observing everything that happens and making a free choice, that doesn't make it. So it's precisely the timelessness of God that allows the freedom and takes it away. Yeah, and then that gets that idea is kind of related to how God enters into time, especially in the incarnation of Christ. So how he, he's he's observing it, and then he chooses at a, a specific moment. This is my time to come into the timeline. 
A good analogy for that is uh, the movies of Alfred Hitchcock or M. Night Shyamalan. They were both the creator of the movies, but they entered themselves into the movies as a minor character. So if even a human movie maker could do that, God could certainly do it. <laughs> That's really good. So we, in the last few questions, we were talking about um, love, right? And in your new book, um, talk about the heart and i want to ask you what are the two purposes of the heart as we kind of commonly understand them in the world today well the word heart in most people's vocabulary today means simply feeling or emotion uh, and they often reduce love to a feeling but the essence of love has to be more than a feeling feelings are not reliable they're wonderful things uh, they're like waves there's always a off uh, and, and, and a, a high point. Uh, you, you can't live on waves. You can surf on waves. They're wonderful, but uh, you have to live on something solid, which is land. So love is essentially a choice of the will, the will to the true good of the other. And if you say, but I can't overcome my emotions by my will, I'm not a stoic, uh, I reply, but you do that all the time with yourself. Uh, let's say you've just come from some encounter with somebody else that you thought you were made a total ass of yourself. You don't like yourself. You don't feel good about yourself. You still love yourself, of course. If you didn't love yourself, you wouldn't care what you made. You always want what is your own best good. And all that Jesus' ethic asks you to do is extend that to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself as you already love yourself. So you can love with the will without loving with the feeling. Your feelings go up and down, your will doesn't. All right, that's one of the meanings of the heart. The heart is the, the deep will, the, the free choice. That's the choice to love. An even deeper meaning of the heart is the true self that you don't fully understand and you can't objectify and find without there in front of you. I, that you mean when you say that's my mind and that those are my feelings and those are my choices. That I who has the body and has the soul, not the body, you have a body, not the soul, you have a soul, not you have a mind. There's a great mystery there. And in the Bible, that's the image of God. God creates us in his own image. Well, what, what, what does that mean? Well, once and only once does God ever reveal his own true eternal name. Moses in the burning bush. And that name is so sacred that no Jew will ever pronounce that word. The word is I am. God is God is I, not just a being, not just an entity, not just a, an ideal. God is God is God. Yeah, and Christ mirrors this in the gospels when he says, I am, I am, I am, or something. Uh, I think that's the quote. And they throw stones at him because the Mosaic law commanded death for public blasphemy. And if he's not God, he's the most blasphemous man who ever lived. They were quite right. Yeah. Or they were quite wrong, but it's either or. Either he's God or he's the most blasphemous wicked man who ever lived. Yeah, that, that, a lot of people say, oh, Christ was a good man. But then when you think about what he actually was saying, you can't say that he was a good man and uh, is not God. Impossible. Impossible. I want to touch on what you were saying about love being in the will, um, especially young men today. I think their, their view of love and relationships can be distorted by the culture, which seems to lead with the feeling and not the will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how can we start to focus and find relationships that are, that we, or how should we approach it, approach a relationship um, in terms of, doing that in the correct manner, correct order? Well, you first have to resolve to do it. You have to want to do it. You have to think to love a person and not just an experience. You can get happy experiences from relationships with persons, sexual or non-sexual. But if you want a, an intimate, I-thou relation, person to person, that has to transcend thoughts, feelings, experiences. Uh, it, has to, it has to be not just to use that person as a means to make you feel good. 
that person has to be an end. And if two people truly fall in love with each other, then the will clicks in and they say, I want to give my whole self to you. And the other person says, and that's what I want to do to you. Uh, to hold back something, to say that, well, I'll, I'll give you my body, but not my mind. Or I'll give you my soul, but not my body. Or I'll give you my, my leisure, but not my work. Uh, that's not true love. That's, that's using and compartmentalizing something. I think the deepest opposite of love is not hate. Uh, hate is at least passionate and takes the other person seriously. The deepest uh, opposite of love is you. uses person, uses human person as, as instruments. And there are several forms by which we use other people as slaves. Sometimes it's voluntary. Uh, prostitution is a good example. The prostitute wants money and the John wants fun. Uh, and you know, here, take my money and I'll give you my body. I'm an intellectual prostitute. I get a salary. That's not my deepest motive. I'd, I'd be a philosopher even though I didn't get paid for it. But I, I do get paid for it. That's not love. Love is giving yourself to another person. Your whole self. And that's the choice of the will. And how can we start to, to bring that out in the relationships that we, we already have or are trying to build? You know, somebody who may not be dating but wants to... To, to pursue a relationship like that? How do they, they've never had a good example of that. How would they even start to look for that? Once again, my answer to the how question is lesson one, honesty. Honest humility. Am I in this for the other person? Or am I in this for myself? Do I want to give or do I want to get? Is this just a kind of mutual masturbation or am I using you and letting you use me as a kind of contract? Or do we want these two people to become one person without losing their, their identity? Uh, the mystery of, of authentic love uh, is that the two people find their own true, unique individual identity the most when they give themselves totally to each other. It sounds like a paradox. Yeah, that idea of avoiding compartmentalization and giving yourself wholly. We have to do something on our own end first. We have to become whole before we can even do that. The, the I that gives itself to the other has to be a whole I, not a partial or compartmentalized I. So I think this would be a good question to kind of finish this up with is, for young men, how can we start to form ourselves to become that whole person? Well, I was about to say I didn't like the word how, but then I corrected myself and said, well, there is an answer to that question. Uh, there's a long tradition of wisdom, uh, not just about theology, but also, also about human psychology and about how to become a saint. Uh, that's one of the functions of the church that Jesus established. Church means basically community, or what Augustine called a city. People who are united by their love of the same good and, and of each other. And consult them, consult the saints, read the saints. Read what the church not just does, uh, the church like the rest of us is full of sinners and we do a lot, a lot of bad things, but what it, what it inherits from Christ, what it teaches, the wisdom that it gives you, uh, for uh, human relations, including especially marriage. Because marriage is the single most important human relationship. And if you can't totally give yourself to and trust yourself, you can't certainly do that with anybody else. If we can't count on you to keep the most solemn promise in your life, uh, then we can't count on you for anything. That, that totality at the center. Yeah, that complete, complete fullness has to be there. And we have to do a lot of work on our own end uh, and really be what we've been talking about, honest with ourselves and humble to get there, I think. There are obstacles. It's not easy. Uh, being honest with other people sometimes is easier than being honest with yourself because you're very good at hiding from yourself. 
But if if you if you really want to be honest, God will help you. How do you get him to help? Ask him. Pray the Beatles prayer. Help. Single <laughs> syllable. Very good beginning to prayer. <laughs> good. Yeah, I think that for men today, they 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 are very broken, and they they try and approach these things like um, relationships, work, and they haven't really done the self evaluation that is necessary first. We don't really have any coming of age experiences in our culture that I think in other cultures can, can help with that. Um, I'm a big fan of those, but I think we need to kind of do that to ourselves, especially as men in our, in our college age uh, ages, as we're, we're coming into that adulthood phase of our life where we're looking for these relationships and these vocational work that we want to give ourselves wholly to, but if we haven't done the work ourselves to become whole, then we can't do that really. There is an institution in all times and places and cultures that is the fundamental coming of age institution that's getting married. Especially if that marriage is complete and authentic and is open to children. Because the two things that will change your life the most and get you out of your little uh, comfortable cocoon of egotism are getting married and having children. Nothing is the same after that. Now, we can't go rushing into that, but that is definitely probably the thing to do. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the single life is not a divine call, too, uh, whether religious or secular, but that the, uh, the standard way of growing up and growing out of your egotism is marriage and children. My children have taught me much more wisdom than anybody else in the world. <laughs> but they've taught me more than I've taught them. Kids have a way of doing that. They do, just by being what they are. And they, they trust better than we do, I think, as adults. Yeah, they're, they're, they're amazing. They're, they're more like dogs than cats. Cats are self-sufficient yuppies and stoic, whereas dogs are, are undisciplined and messy and inconvenient, but they love you and they trust you and they wag your tail when they come home. That's right. Be a good dog. <laughs> be a be a childlike dog <laughs> well just to finish this off what advice would you give to young men who are listening to this uh and if they're they're lost and don't know where to start or they they haven't they want to find god they want to find they want to become more whole where do they where do they begin words honesty and prayer be honest with yourself right uh, realize that uh, uh, you don't have all the answers and you need them. Uh, and God will bring people into your life that'll help you find those answers. It's not a, uh, a do-it-yourself project without God and without other people. Well, Peter, this is uh, such a joy and a, a pleasure. For me too. Thank you. Privilege being here. Yeah, I hope we could uh, do it in the future maybe someday. Okay, I'm open to that. Thank All you. right. God, God bless you and your work. You as well. Thank you so much. That was my guest, Dr. Peter Kreeft, professor of philosophy at Boston College and the King's College. Dr. Kreeft is the author of numerous books in the areas of philosophy, theology, and apologetics. He is a convert to Roman Catholicism and has become one of the greatest intellectual figures in the church today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it as I did, and I look forward to having you back here for the next one.